0: Thanks, you all. That was gorgeous. Couldn't you just sing those songs for hours? Wonderful. I'm Lynn Kitchens. I'm so happy to be here with you today. And you look beautiful. We've been following the life and the ministry of Jesus in the book of Luke, and now it has led us to the cross. Jesus calls this time of great suffering the hour of, When darkness reigns, those who hated hated Jesus came to arrest him at night in the dark in a garden, and the last three hours of his life, darkness covered the land, so the steps to the cross began and ended in darkness. The deepest darkness was the darkness that resided in the hearts of Jesus' enemies. This was their hour. It was an hour of literal and spiritual darkness. And you and I would still be living in darkness today if Jesus had responded to his suffering in any other way than in the way in which he responded. In other words, if he responded like you and I would have responded. If in any way he had been hateful, vindictive, vengeful, proud. If he had spoken one word of contempt... ...or hate or retaliation, if he had begged to be removed from this torture, then our worlds today would be dark indeed. Because we would not have a savior. That would have proved that he was not the God-man. He would just simply be a man. You and I would still be in our sins today, still be in darkness. The reality is, even in the midst of great darkness... The light of Christ shone. He, he was who he claimed to be, the light of the world. And when we look closely at all of the events that surround the cross, we see the words and actions of God. So look on your verse sheet. John 12, then Jesus cried out, When a man believes in me, he does not believe in me only, but in the one who sent me. When he looks at me, he sees the one who sent me. I have come into the world as a light so that no one who believes in me should stay in darkness. So when the time had come for Jesus to pay the penalty for our sins, we find him on the Mount of Olives at the Garden of Gethsemane. And amazingly, at night, at 2 in the morning, with all the evil and darkness around him, his light still shines. Even in the midst of betrayal. Look in Luke 22, verse 47. While he was still speaking to the disciples, a crowd came up. And the man who was called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He approached Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus asked him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? It's two in the morning. He'd be on the cross by nine in the morning. So these events ...are going to take place very quickly here. He is speaking to his disciples. When out of the darkness, a crowd approaches. And you know how when you're in the dark... ...and somebody's got lanterns and torches... ...and, and the book of John tells us that's what this crowd was doing. In the dark, Jesus with his disciples see this crowd... ...coming toward him, the light flickering. Um, it's the Romans, soldiers. It's the Jewish religious leaders. They're carrying weapons... They're carrying clubs and swords. And if you looked really closely through the dark shadows of the garden, you can make out Judas leading them all. Now, Judas, being one of the 12 disciples, we have to stop and think what that was like for the disciples to look through and see Judas leading people with weapons leading people that seem violent right towards them. Judas has been a close friend and a disciple of Jesus for three years, but his personal ambitions had overcome his loyalty to Jesus. And so Judas had come up with a sign that he told the religious leaders that he would kiss the one they should arrest. He would kiss Jesus. And someone wrote this, it was the crowning touch of horror... When in the garden, Judas betrayed his master, not with a shout, not with a blow, but with a kiss. Jesus knew about Judas's plans. He knew the kiss, and he knew what was behind the kiss. And Jesus exposes Judas' true motive, which was betrayal. And we can't know for certain what all was in the heart of Judas. But here's something we can say if we put all the Gospels together. We know that Judas didn't care about what Jesus cared about. And what we also know is that Judas did care about money. He was the treasurer. He kept the money for the disciples. And it says that he would often steal the money out of that for his own selfish uses. So he decides to take the initiative go to the religious leaders they didn't come to him and offer to turn Jesus over to them because he also knows I'm going to get some profit out of this and sure enough they hand him 30 pieces of silver so as Judas comes to Jesus and he leans in to kiss him he believes he is doing the right thing have you ever been in a dark place brought about by your own sin. When your personal ambitions blind you to your loyalty to Jesus. And you sin and then everything gets darker and then you begin to rationalize that what you're doing really isn't a sin and then you just justify it or you blame others or you ignore it. I read about how we often drift from holiness. And the article said we don't drift into holiness we drift into compromise we drift into compromise and we call it tolerance we drift into disobedience and we call it freedom we drift into superstition and we call it faith we drift into lack of discipline and we call it relaxation we drift into prayerlessness we call it a freedom from legalism we drift into godlessness and we call it being liberated and it's all because of the choices and through the darkness of sin in our lives. When we are in this kind of a dark place, there's something we can just thank God for. As we lean in to kiss Jesus in the midst of our confusion and our sin, Jesus will shed light on our impure motives and expose them and our behavior so we might recognize The darkness of our sin. Apart from God's intervention, we would not call sin, sin. We would be lost. We would convince ourselves right is wrong and wrong is right. And guess what? We would always be right. That's how we'd see everything. So I paid the mayor of Toronto so I could use him as an illustration today. He fits so perfectly right here. If those of you have been seeing him on the news, this is a mayor in Toronto saying, yes, I buy illegal drugs. Yes, I use illegal drugs. No, it's not a problem. It's not a problem. Calling right, wrong, wrong, right, apart from Jesus Christ and him exposing us so we can recognize our sin, that's where we would all be. What a horrible place to be. Jesus will let us know it's disobedience, and he will let us know our disobedience amounts to betrayal against him because all sin is betrayal against our Savior. And Jesus is the light that rescues us from ourselves. And aren't you glad for that? Uh, 1 John 1 tells us, God is light, in Him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with Him, yet walk in the darkness, we lie. We do not live by the truth. But if we walk in the light, as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, His Son, purifies us of all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness okay we need to leave the garden a minute we're going to come back to it but we need to look at another betrayer in jesus life at this point last week we read about peter and his boastful words about him following jesus look back at chapter 22 verse 31 Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. But he replied, Lord, I'm ready to go with you to prison and to death. Jesus answered, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you will deny three times that you know me. After Jesus is arrested in the garden, he's taken to the home of the high priest Caiaphas. First, he gets interrogated by Caiaphas's important father-in-law, Annas, who's also there. They probably shared a common courtyard. And I love it that Peter has bravely followed this uh, group to the home there. And we need to envision that Peter is sitting around a fire. It's dark. Again, the flames are flickering on the faces of the people that have arrested Christ in the garden. And as that's happening, there's a slave girl that's got her eyes set on Peter. And we learn from the book of John she's also a doorkeeper. And she's staring at Peter and she says, you know what? This man was with him. Of course, those were scary words for Peter to hear when he's looking at people that hate Jesus, and so it's very easy and safe for him to say, a Woman, I don't know him. Some time goes on. Second accusation comes from a man. He looks at him and he says, You are also one of them. Now, this is a harder accusation because he's connecting Peter as being part of the inner circle here. And so Peter's denial, Man, I am not. Third accusation, a little time later, was the most serious of all. The accuser insists on his point that he was there, and he has evidence. This accuser says, certainly this fellow was with him, because he is a Galilean. Peter's accent had given him away. John tells us that this last accuser was a relative of the slave whose ear Peter cut off. We're going to go back to that. So you can see why he might have been really interested in figuring out, is this the guy that cut my relative's ear off? So he's looking at him. Peter's third denial. Man, I don't know what you're talking about. And Matthew tells us that he swore down curses and oaths. And as Peter was still speaking those curses, the sound of a rooster crowing, hit his ears. And somewhere across the courtyard, Jesus turned and looked right into Peter's eyes. And the word looked there means with intent and firmness. And I think it was probably one of the worst moments in Peter's life. He had denied his Lord three times, just like Jesus told him he was going to do. And he ran from the courtyard weeping. Peter's loyalty to Jesus had been based on a false confidence in his own strength. I read about a dad who was in the kitchen one morning. He was looking out his kitchen window and he saw his little son in the backyard trying to move a big boulder. And he was doing this and he was doing that. And he tried to wedge it with a stone and he tried to wedge it with a log and did all these things. And then the son just sits down totally defeated, frustrated. And so the dad walks out and looks at him and said, So, have you used all the strength available to you? And the son looked at himself and said, Yes. And the dad said, No, you haven't asked me to help. This was Peter's problem. He was trying to do everything in his own strength. He trusted in his own strength. So Jesus convicted Peter of his pride and his betrayal in one look. And this was a gracious thing for Jesus to do. Until Peter was broken down, he could not rise up to be the man that Jesus was going to need him to be. And uh, this is another way that Jesus is a light in our lives in the midst of our darkness. When we betray Jesus by our sins, he looks right at us. And we are convicted. He does that through his word. He does that in our prayers. He does that through the work of his Holy Spirit. And that look into our heart, you all know what that feels like. It feels awful. We also run away weeping. We have great sorrow. But in reality, it is a great mercy in our lives. Because he has to humble us so he can heal us so we can get back in the game of doing kingdom work. Think about Peter. And you know, Jesus knew who Peter was going to become. But he had to break him first. And the fact of the matter is, he became a leader of the church Peter became a pillar of truth, a man of faith. He died a martyr's death. He died probably upside down because he didn't feel worthy to die like his Lord. And he wasn't denying Jesus anymore. Listen what he wrote to the early churches in 1 Peter 5. This is from someone who knows. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. So, in the midst of our betrayal, Jesus exposes and he convicts us of our sins instead of leaving us in the dark. Aren't you glad <laughs> our God is the light of the world so we don't have to live our lives oblivious to our sins and the havoc? We do to all the people and situations around us. We have a God who loves us enough to heal us, show us our sins, and grow us. Okay, so in the midst of injustice, would Jesus' light still shine? So let's go back to the garden. Verse 49 of chapter 22. When Jesus' followers saw what was going to happen, they said, Lord, should we strike our swords? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest cutting off his right ear. And we know that from the other Gospels it was Peter. But Jesus answered, No more of this. And he touched the man's ear and healed him. And then Jesus said to the chief priests, the officers of the temple, the guard and the elders who had come for him, Am I leading a rebellion that you have come with swords and clubs? Every day I was with you in the temple courts. You didn't lay a hand on me. But this is your hour when darkness reigns. Okay, this arrest was illegal for a number of reasons. First of all, it was done at night. Not legal. It was accomplished through Judas, a hired accuser. Not legal. Some of the judges themselves, the Sanhedrin, they came to the arrest themselves. The judge can't come to arrest someone. Unethical. Everyone is just sort of chaotic, filled with evil intent. They're treating Jesus like he's a criminal when they have watched him teaching every day in the synagogues. So what's Jesus doing? He allows the power of darkness to have their way. And by doing so, he shines a light on his true identity. Here's some ways you can see that. Um, in the book of John, I'm just going to mention this because it's one of my favorite stories. It lets us know that Jesus approached the arresting crowd himself and said, hey, who is it you're looking for? He presented himself to the crowd. And then he said to them, and leave the disciples alone. Just come for me. So he's protecting the disciples at the same time. And when he says, who are you here for? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus looks at them and says, I am he. The impact of that truth, the words jolted the soldiers and they fell to the ground. Even in the midst of darkness, we see the authority of God in Jesus. Next, Jesus heals this ear We just read about that Peter has cut off. And I think that's because during his ministry, Jesus always said, My kingdom is not of this world, so we're not going to behave like this world. Peter chopping the near off is what the rest of the world would do. And so Jesus stops that right there. And in that, uh, we see that Jesus exhibits the mercy and the power of God in the midst of darkness. In his rest, he knows... The forces of evil are attacking God himself. Look on your verse sheet at John 3. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. And it is interesting to think, I am sure that that crowd... That crazy crowd that came to arrest Jesus, they thought they were in control of the situation. They were never in control of the situation. Jesus was in control of the situation the whole night. He allowed his arrest because he was willing to die. The just for the unjust. Even in the darkness, Jesus exhibits the compassion of God. We also see unjustness in the trials he faces after that. Jesus faced six unjust trials, three before the Jewish authorities, Annas, Caiaphas, and the Sanhedrin, and three before the Roman officials, twice with Pilate, once with Herod. Luke recorded two of the Jewish trials, and here's why they were unjust. I'm going to just go through this list. According to Jewish law, no trials could take place before the morning sacrifice. They rushed his trial. They tried to get it in there as quick as they could. The requirement, two or three witnesses had to be present, they ignored. They did hire people to perjure themselves and lie about Jesus. They don't count as witnesses. A verdict of capital punishment could not be given on the same day of the arrest. They ignored that. Secret trials were illegal. They had to be done in public. Ignored that. The charge of blasphemy, we're going to see will have originated with the judges. The judge's role instead was to examine a charge other people brought them, and they were to presume the prisoner innocent until someone else proved him guilty. Judges already decided that themselves. Here's why the Roman trials were unjust. Pilate tried to make the prisoner incriminate himself. There was no evidence given to Pilate, no evidence worthy of a conviction. And when Pilate first acquitted Jesus, Jesus should have been legally immediately released. He was acquitted actually three times. And he still went to his death. One person said this, All generations since have felt that the judged was really the judge in those unjust trials. The men were really standing before the bar of Christ and all appear in a terrible distinctness revealed by the light of the world. Look at verse 66. At daybreak, the council of the elders of the people, both the chief priests, teachers, met together, and Jesus was led before them. If you are the Christ, they said, tell us. Jesus answered, if I tell you, you won't believe me. And if I asked you, you wouldn't answer. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the mighty God. And they all asked, Are you then the Son of God? He replied, You are right in saying, I am. Then they said, Why do we need any more testimony? We have heard it from his own lips. Jesus, at this point, had already been tried by Annas and Caiaphas. Remember, he was in the courtyard there. Now he stands... Early day before the council of the elders, the Sanhedrin, this was the legal authority for the Jewish nation. These were the judges. There were probably about 70 of them here on this day. And those that arrested him, the other religious leaders, they have to bring validity to what they already decided. And so they have to go through the Sanhedrin, bringing Jesus there. Um, And the Sanhedrin wanted to know if Jesus was presenting himself to the world as the Messiah. They want him to incriminate himself. And Jesus knows this. Their views of the Messiah are totally wrong. They don't get it. They didn't get it when he walked around with them and asked them questions. And they asked him questions. So he's like, what's with the questions? I'm not going to answer any more questions right now. It's too late. You've chosen darkness. You never heard what I said before? You're not going to hear it right now. By Jesus' answer that he does give, we can see that he's looking ahead to the cross while his enemies are still left in the darkness they created. When he says, From now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the mighty God but from now on indicates that Jesus sees a change in his role the glory of Jesus has already begun so he announces instead here that he's the son of God and he's going to be seated at the right hand of the mighty God look at Hebrews 1.3 the son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being sustaining all things by his powerful word After he provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. When Jesus says this, he's saying, I'm going to sit at the right hand, the place of highest honor. And I'm going to sit because that is a symbol of resting. And Jesus would be saying, my work on earth, my redemptive work is finished. Okay, how do you think that went over with the Sanhedrin? When they heard that he called himself the Son of God, they could not believe their ears, and the verdict immediately is guilty. The charge, blasphemy. And Matthew tells us at this point, Caiaphas jumps up, he tears his robe as a sign of uh, hatred and anger, and then they spit in Jesus' face, they beat him with their fists, they slap him with their hand, and Jesus lets them. It's their time to reign. The leaders of the Jewish nation refuse to believe in Jesus regardless of the authority that surrounds him, the miracles, his teachings. And you know what I want to say? Weren't you there in the garden when he took an ear? Did that not mean anything to you? It lets you know how deep their darkness was that they chose to not even believe any of those things about Christ. They chose on behalf of the whole Jewish nation to stay in the dark. Look at John 1. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Okay, the Sanhedrin, though, are left with two problems. One, they have no authority to impose the death penalty, which they've already decided they want to do with Jesus. Rome has that authority, so they've got to get him to the Romans. Secondly, because they're taking him to the Romans, they need to come up with a charge that the Romans would see as worthy of death. Blasphemy wouldn't have counted there. So look in chapter 23, verse 1. Then the whole assembly rose and led him off to Pilate, and they began to accuse him. And this is interesting, the whole assembly. So this is 70-plus people. They didn't trust just a few people to take him. They wanted to make sure to push this crucifixion through. They began to accuse Jesus, saying, We found this man subverting our nation. He opposes payment of taxes to Caesar, and he claims to be Christ a king. So Pilate asked Jesus, Are you the king of the Jews? Yes, it is as you say, Jesus replied. Then Pilate announced to the chief priests and the crowd, I find no basis for a charge against this man. But they insisted. He stirs up the people all over Judea by his teaching. He started in Galilee and he has come all the way here. They hand Jesus to Pilate. Their false claim he doesn't want to pay taxes to Caesar, he opposes it. Now, you and I know that's not true. We know he told them, "Yeah, pay to Caesar what's Caesar's?" So they make that up. And then they twist Jesus' claim to being a Messiah to make it look like he wants to overthrow the Roman government and make himself a king. So Pilate says, "Are you the king of the Jews?" And in all four gospels, the emphatic word is "you," which here's what could be happening. We get this sense that when the Jewish officials hand Jesus over to Pilate, they're presenting him as this rough and tough political revolutionist. And when the word you is emphasized, it's almost like Pilate looks Jesus up and down and said, Are you the king of the Jews? This quiet man that stands in front of me? So Jesus just says yes and doesn't try to explain it any more than that. Because Pilate won't understand. Pilate looks this man again and thinks, there is no threat that he's going to overtake Caesar. And he wants to let him go. The people won't let him. They insist. And so Pilate figures out a way. We're not going to read. Herod, who's actually under Jesus' jurisdiction because he's a tetrarch in Galilee, he finds out Herod's in town. He says, good, send this guy to Herod. He goes to Herod. It's pretty much the same thing except in this trial Jesus actually says nothing. He doesn't speak one word because all Herod wants he's heard about Jesus a long time. He just wants to see him do miracles. And so Jesus says and does nothing, so they mock him, they ridicule him. They find an old royal robe somewhere. They put it on him to mock him, and then they ship him right back to Pilate, which Pilate wasn't very happy to see Jesus returning. Pilate returns to his original verdict of not guilty. The people insist on their verdict of guilty, and the people win because they are a mob. They are loud. They are unruly. They are angry. They are screaming, crucify him, crucify him. And Pilate is too weak to stand up to them. The great thing is there were two truths that Jesus spoke in these very unjust and dark trials. And we heard them. First he claimed he was the son of God. Then he claimed he was the king of Jews. Jesus testified to truth, contrasting the lies and deception of the Jews. John 18. These are some more words that John lets us know about his time with Pilate. You are a king, then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, You are right in saying, I am a king. In fact, for this reason I was born, and for this reason I came into the world, to testify to the truth, everyone on the side of truth, listens to me. And Jesus, besides speaking truth that shone like a light, also spoke no hate, no vengeful thoughts, no threats, no regrets. Look at First Peter. He committed no sin, no deceit was found in his mouth, and when they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to one who judges justly. Do we need even some more evidence of the injustice around Jesus at this point? You know, what they would do at Passover often is they would let the Jews pick a prisoner that they would release. So Pilate sees it as a way to get rid of Jesus. Okay, I'll release Jesus to you on the Passover. And the people say, no. We want Barabbas. Barabbas, the murderer, the insurrectionist, the troublemaker. We want Barabbas. They would rather have a murderer in their midst than a Messiah. They would rather have a well-known sinner among them than the one who forgives sin. Could there be a greater injustice? The one guilty of death is pardoned, Barabbas and the innocent one will die in his place, Jesus. Does that sound familiar? The guilty one of death is pardoned, and the innocent one will die in his place. Hey, that's our story. That's the redemption story, witnessed right there between Barabbas and Jesus. Jesus, the sinless, dying for the sinner, so we can stand before a just God. So Jesus goes to the cross in obedience to the Father's plan. In the midst of injustice, Jesus remains just. And we have to remember the world, until we get to be (laughs) with him for eternity, will always be unjust. So to live in it, we have to do what Jesus did. We have to entrust the wrongs in the world, the wrongs done to us, with a God who is just. We entrust it with him. I read about a um, dad who got up early one morning, wanted to have his coffee. It was like 6 in the morning. And to his dismay, his little 5-year-old got out of bed and came down in the kitchen. And he was reading the paper. So there was a picture of the world on the paper. And so he real quickly got his scissors out and made a puzzle for her. And he said, hey, put the world back together. And he thought, I've got 20 minutes to read the newspaper. She was back like this. And he was like, oh, yay. How did you get the world put back together so quickly? And she said, it was easy, Daddy. There was a man on the back of the paper. And when I made the man come together, the whole world became right. Only Jesus can fix the world. Only Jesus is just one day. That's going to happen. We don't ever have to worry. The injustice is done to us that we've done to others that are in the world, that that's too much for God to handle. One day, his justice will right all the wrongs. Look on your verse sheet at Revelation. And the angels held harps and sang the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. Great and marvelous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, King of the ages, All nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. Could the light of Christ shine down from the cross? That's where he's heading now. I read this. Everything that Christ ever touched, the cross included, he adorned and transfigured and hallowed with splendor and beauty. And I think that's true. How can we look at the cross, though, and think this is a place of beauty? It was actually a place of cruel death. And this is why. This is the place our sins were forgiven. This is the place where Jesus willingly laid down his life so we might have life. This is the place where the punishment that belonged to us was placed on the Son of God. This is why we cherish the old rugged cross. Look at Colossians 1. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. Okay, we have to read all four Gospels to really get the whole picture of Jesus in his journey to the cross. Luke's focus that we're going to look at is that he wants Jesus to look um, as the forgiving Messiah, even as he died. Luke wants to show us that. So first we see that, how forgiven he is by those that were crucifying. So I want you to envision he's walking. Someone else is carrying his cross. When they went to be crucified, they were beat up really badly beforehand. He couldn't carry his cross. So a man named Simon carried it. And uh, he walked, and next to him, on their same way as he are two thieves. And they're walking to a place called the Skull. In Latin, the word is calvaria, which is where we get the word calvary. And no one knows for sure why it was called the skull, the place that they went. It could have been a hill shaped like a skull, but it could also have just been a place of death, and so they called it the skull. Jesus is lifted into the air, and on one side another thief is lifted, on the other side the other thief is lifted. And this fulfilled a great prophecy, Isaiah 53:12. he was numbered with the transgressors. Above his head, out of spite, Pilate, unbeknownst to the Jews, has made a notice, an inscription that is written in three languages, Greek, Latin, and Hebrew, and it says, the king of the Jews. And unknowingly, Pilate was letting everybody know that could read in any of those languages that Jesus is the king of the Jews. And uh, he wasn't even aware he was doing that, but in a way, Jesus was already wearing his crown because that's what it said above him, the king of the Jews. All around Jesus are what we would call today bullies, literally. The guy hanging next to him on one side, the guy hanging next to him. Hurling abuse. And mocking at Jesus. The people that are down at the cross, lots of them hurling abuse. The official Jewish leadership, hurling abuse. The soldiers, hurling abuse. Mocking and insulting him. And this is the point when someone was being crucified that they begin to yell back at the people that are yelling at them. This would have been common. For them to spit down on the people laughing at the bottom of the cross. For them to curse the people. For them to scream out at the people. And what do you think happened when they see Jesus' lips moving and he is saying, Father, forgive them. You think they ever heard that before from the cross? Unbelievable. Father, forgive them. He prays for both the Jews who were responsible for his crucifixion and the Romans who carried out that plan. Look at verse 34 in chapter 23. Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. Here's what we can learn from that prayer. First we realize he calls God Father. His confidence in God's love for him is still strong, even on the cross. Secondly, we realize Jesus has no sins to ask the Father to forgive. What do you think most people were doing on the cross when they were dying? They were also realizing, I'm a sinner. What's going to happen to me when I go from here? And maybe in their hearts, some of them were confessing, trying to get right with God at the last minute. Jesus didn't need to do that. Instead, he's praying for others. He's fulfilling another prophecy of Isaiah. He will make intercession for transgressors. And third, we see in that prayer the unbelievable love of God for us beyond all comprehension. And when Jesus says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do, he's not saying their ignorance makes their sin excusable, but it makes them uh, forgivable because they were blind. These people were blinded by hatred and jealousy. They had an opportunity to be forgiven. But they saw Jesus in their blindness as just a blasphemous imposter. They were unlike Judas and Pilate who knew the truth of Jesus' innocence. So did God forgive the sins of everybody involved in Jesus' crucifixion? And we can't know everybody's hearts. I do think we have some evidence that many people did uh, come to forgiveness of sins as they saw Jesus on the cross. Luke tells us that lots of people when they went home were in great sorrow, beating their chests, realizing an innocent man died. And I believe some of those same people would have been... Um, With Peter, when the early church was starting, after the ascension, when they heard Peter explain who Jesus really was they crucified on the cross, 3,000 people believed in him, were forgiven of their sins. I think some of those people were there at the cross. We know the centurion saw his death and had a change of heart. But we have to remember every act of forgiveness involves two people. Forgiveness must be accepted as well as given. And the prayer of Christ here makes forgiveness available to every sinful man, even today. But many will choose not to receive it. Okay, then the sinner crucified next to him. He's going to forgive him. And you think, okay, wait a minute. Just a minute ago he was yelling out and cursing at Jesus. And yes, But he's been seeing the light of Christ on that cross. And it's shown a light on his sin and shown a light on the sinlessness of Jesus. And so this man's heart begins to change. Look at verse 39. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at Jesus. Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God? Since you're under the same sentence, we're punished justly. We're getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, I tell you the truth. Today you will be with me in paradise. Here's the faith that has grown in the heart of this thief on the cross. It's one of my favorite stories. He believes in the innocence and the goodness of the man hanging next to him. He believes Jesus will one day rule over his own kingdom. He believes that Jesus alone has the power and the authority to forgive him and redeem him and change his life. And think about it. Did the disciples have this kind of faith? They thought Jesus was going to a cold, dark tomb. This guy believes Jesus is going on into his kingdom. Take me with you. The first words that we looked at when Jesus forgave the crowd around him represented Christ's intercession as the high priest. Father, forgive them. These words of forgiveness that he speaks to the thief on the cross come from Christ, the King of glory. Today, you will be with me in paradise forever. Was it because the thief got baptized real quick? Did he do something good on the cross? Did he go to church? No. He simply believed Jesus. And here is the amazing promise that that sinner receives from Jesus. You'll be in paradise? What a place. Today? What a time. With me? What a savior. Gosh, I love that story. And here's what this tells us too there is no purgatory, there is paradise after we die, when we believe in Jesus. So now it's about noon. He's been on the cross three hours. Suddenly it becomes as dark as night, and it would stay dark for the next three hours until Jesus decided to take his last breath. Israel had rejected the light of the world, and now they were left in the dark. Literally, it was a sign of divine judgment. It was also a sign of God's wrath being poured out on Jesus as the substitute for our sin and for sins then. And here's the amazing thing in those three hours of darkness, no longer would men be separated from God. In those three hours, No longer would men have to go to someone else to get to God. No longer would the Jews have to go through a sacrificial system to get to God through belief in the sacrifice of God's Son on the cross. Everyone could draw near to God. And the curtain of the temple that was this thick miraculously was split from top to bottom in the temple, the curtain that separated God as he dwelled in the Holy of Holies from the presence of man, no longer are we separated. And it's split in half to illustrate that reality during that dark time. And with that, our atonement was accomplished and Jesus yields his soul to God he cries out Psalm 31.5 in a loud voice. It's a confident prayer. Look at verse 46. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Right out of Psalm 31. Jesus is saying, my work is done. His communion with his Father is restored. Never again to be interrupted. But his offer of forgiveness didn't die with his physical death. He died like this. He died with his arms reaching out. The offer of forgiveness for our sins was still being offered to the people Around the cross that were looking up at him, they had that opportunity to also believe and receive his forgiveness, and I think many of them did. And I don't think he's ever quit reaching out, he's waiting for us as well to receive the forgiveness that he wants to offer us. He's never quit reaching out, and he never will. In the midst of suffering, Jesus desired. Our reconciliation with God today as we sit here. While they nailed Jesus to the cross, pardon for his foes, he pled. Before his spirit took its flight unto God, he spoke and he said, Father, into hands of thine I commend this soul of mine. When our day of life is done, unknown realms our souls must dare. Lift our eyes to heaven and trust. Speak the name of God in prayer. Father, into hands of thine, I commend this soul of mine. The light of the world is still shining so that those of us who believe in him will never walk in darkness. Praise God for that. Let me pray. Lord, we come to you humbly. With praise, with thanksgiving, with unworthiness, we look to the cross, we see your forgiveness, we see your sacrifice, we see your love. May it encourage our hearts, the deep love you have for us. And may we choose to take that light and be lights ourselves in a dark world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.